They had things, uh, levels of voting that if you ever agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again. Sounds good. Thank you, Wisconsin. That'll do. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No. I'm too scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, in Grand Rapids on WPRR, down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin, Hello, Wisconsin, on WADR and Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day, even during pandemics, on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week, Troublemaker, Muckraker. And all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, I want to start with some uh, some listener mail, Desi Doyen, if okay. that's okay with you. Well, of course. <laughs> this is from uh, Dan in Minnesota who uh, with the subject, uh, subject line, A joke from your cousin. Hi, Brad. I hope I didn't do anything illegal. I stole a short clip from your show. <laughs> The quarantine joke and emailed it to a group of local friends. Uh, here's the clip that he's that uh, Dan stole, which was a joke I received from my cousin, which Dan was kind enough to include in his email. Day nine of the quarantine. My wife called out from the other room and asked if I ever get a stabbing pain in my chest like someone has a voodoo doll of me and is stabbing it. I replied, no. She responded, how about now? <laughs> So that was the clip he, he included with that. Uh, and he, he worries he might have done something. Still funny. Uh, he, so he, he shared this uh, with a group of local friends, and he says they all replied back to me and pretty much said, that's great. Where did you get that? I told them from the Brad blog on am950radio.com. I also sent them a link to bradblog.com. In general, they all said, I'm going to have to start listening to that. Awesome. Are you okay with what I did? He asks. <laughs> Signed, an AM 950 KTNF listener, Dan uh, in Minnetonka, Minnesota. Yes, Dan, I'm okay with what you did, and I wish more people did the same, whether they stole a clip or not. But yes, of course, we want you to help spread the word. It's just pretty much Desi and I around here. <laughs> we need all of you guys to you know, help get the word out any way possible. 
pandemic or otherwise so that we can uh, continue on and uh, at least try to make it through this election year. (laughs) Yeah, as you often say. This country ain't going to save itself, no. but we can do it together. We can try. Yes, we and have don't to. don't stop. Yes, we have to do it together. So uh, thank you, Dan. Please keep spreading the, uh, the word out there. Otherwise, we may not be around to do it ourselves. One more here. Uh, this comes from Fred in Southern California. This was after uh, one of our particularly depressing shows last week, <laughs> uh, the one in which I felt it necessary to sort of counter the BS coming out of the White House that we would just somehow be able to throw open the throw open the doors to the country for open for business as soon as May gets here. So, yeah, it, it was kind of a grim show, to say the least. Fred writes, subject, a distinct reaction. Dear Brad, for very possibly the first time, listening to your excellent broadcast depressed me. It's not your fault. Facts are facts. We've never developed a a vaccine for any of the 19 coronaviruses, he asked. Uh, Well, actually, there have not been 19 coronaviruses. It's called COVID-19 because that was the year it was discovered, in 2019. But there have been a bunch of other coronaviruses. And yes, as Donald Trump's own FDA administrator, former FDA administrator, says, we have never developed a a vaccine for a coronavirus. So whether it can be done or not, I don't know. Of course, it fell to me to have to tell everyone in the country that last week. Sorry. Uh, Fred goes on to say, uh, we've never developed a vaccine. The paltry checks aren't going out. Republicans still back Trump. The new normal isn't going to be very normal and won't arrive for years. Again, it's not your fault, says Fred. Well, thank you, Fred. Uh, Yes, it is not my fault. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, I was actually troubled about that show. Desi will tell you, uh, before we went on air, I I said to you, uh, man, I got nothing but grim news, depressing news today. And sorry about that. uh, But that's what I had. And I frankly, I guess it's going to be like that sometimes for a while right now. I wish I could change that, but I can't. But yes, Fred, it is not my fault. So I will comfort myself with that, at least. And with the fact that looking down the stack of stuff that I got to cover today... And I don't know that I'm going to get to it all, frankly, uh, because I've got a guest joining us momentarily. But damn near every part of it is actually quite encouraging, at least until we get to Desi Doyen's Green News Report. <laughs> but uh, not fake encouraging like Donald Trump's pretend news, his fake news, but actually encouraging, I think. And for the most encouraging at the moment, we got to start maybe end at, uh, shockingly enough, at the great state of Wisconsin. I received an odd amount of WTF replies on Twitter late last Tuesday night, April 7, Election Day in Wisconsin, when I tweeted, quote, I'd like to say hooray and thank you to the voters of Wisconsin. And I'm not sure what the WTFs were about in response, but allow me to re-up that. Hooray and thank you to the voters of Wisconsin who, though they never should have been asked to even do so, risked their lives by standing in line for hours, some of them in literal thunder and hailstorms, just to cast uh, their vote in last week's presidential primary and, more importantly for the moment, the statewide state Supreme Court election in Wisconsin and a whole bunch of uh, local elections as well. 
On Monday night, we have now learned that the liberal challenger ousted a right-wing Wisconsin Supreme Court justice endorsed by President Donald Trump, overcoming what was a successful, if blatantly deadly, push by Republicans to forge ahead with last week's election, forcing hundreds of thousands of state voters to choose between potential death by trying to cast a vote or having their votes suppressed by Republicans, that even as numerous other states have postponed their elections, postponed them last month due to the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Joe Biden also emerged victorious, according to the uh, results finally released on Monday from Wisconsin, by a more than 30 point, uh, what was it, 63 to 32 percent margin over Bernie Sanders, though that was largely expected in the state's Democratic presidential primary contest, according to AP. Biden's victory became largely academic the next day when Vermont Senator Sanders dropped out one day after the Wisconsin uh, after Wisconsin was forced to hold an its in-person voting. That, of course, was thanks to the right wing state Supreme Court. And the stolen Republican majority on the U.S. Supreme Court, where every single right winger on each of those two courts voted one way or another in favor of forcing voters to risk their lives rather than postponing the race or mandating an all vote by mail uh, election. Or in the case of the U.S. Supreme Court, they wouldn't even allow a six day extension for absentee ballots even though tens of thousands of ballots did not even get to voters in advance of the April 7 election day, which was also, well, thanks to the U.S. Supreme Court, it was the mandated deadline for when those voters had to have those ballots returned or postmarked for return. And they hadn't even received them yet. So that decision was made, by the way, by the U.S. Supreme Court, even as they had postponed all of their own scheduled arguments for the entire month of April due to the pandemic because it wasn't safe. But you voters in Wisconsin, you go ahead and good luck to you. Cast your vote. Nothing we can do about it. Yes, even though a lower court, a lower federal court and a lower uh, appeals court, a very conservative appeals court, all agreed that we could add another six days to allow those ballots to both get out to voters and get back in to the uh, uh, municipalities to be counted, well, the U.S. Supreme Court said no to that. Uh, Nonetheless, the surprise absentee ballot-fueled victory by a liberal Supreme Court candidate by the name of Jill Karofsky was announced on Monday night, and it was a huge win for Democrats in Wisconsin and arguably around the country, as we'll talk about with my guest in a moment. The 1.3 million absentee ballots requested, many of them did not arrive in time or at all, but that number requested was more than the number of absentee ballots requested in the 2016 general election in Wisconsin by far. And the total number of ballots that were received back by officials, which is more than 1.1 million, that number eclipsed the entire vote total of the 2016 Democratic primary, both absentee and in-person voting. Wisconsin voters uh, did not sit this one out, thankfully, despite the difficulties and dangers that they were forced to face just to vote. The victory in the state Supreme Court race 
reduced the Republican control of that court to four to three, from five to two to four to three, giving uh, Wisconsin um, progressives a chance to take control of the state Supreme Court, though not until 2023, when another so-called conservative will be on the ballot, giving the Democrats at that point the chance to flip the balance of the state. The state Supreme Court from uh, four to three in favor of right wingers to four to three in their own favor for the very first time in years. Heads up, Wisconsin. Play the long game. You got three years. Uh, they're on. You don't have to tell Wisconsin I'm how to vote at anyway. this point. You don't have to. They're on this game for sure. Now, uh, Judge Karofsky will now be on the court, on the Supreme Court, when the Republican-controlled legislature tackles redistricting next year. That could come in handy. That's a fight that many expect to be decided by the state Supreme Court. In a state where Republicans have so gerrymandered the state legislature for the past decade that they currently control two-thirds of the seats in the General Assembly, despite Democrats having won a 54% majority of the votes that were cast in the 2018 election there. That's how important gerrymandering is, and particularly to the state of Wisconsin and that's just one of the reasons why the state Supreme Court is uh, so uh, important right now and uh, who controls it. Karofsky's win will also certainly be seen as a bellwether in battleground Wisconsin ahead of the November presidential election. Oh, is there a presidential election in November? <laughs> Trump, of course, barely carried the state four years ago, supposedly by just 23,000 votes out of about three million cast. And yet Jill Karofsky won the election uh, a week ago Tuesday by about 160,000 votes. She credited her win to voters rising up and rejecting Republican efforts to suppress turnout. She said people were willing to do that because they wanted their voices to be heard in this election. A lot of times on Election Day, she said, we're wringing our hands because we're so upset about voter apathy. That was not the problem on Tuesday. People wanted their voices heard. Soon-to-be Justice Jill Karofsky issued a statement uh, sending, quote, a heartfelt thank, uh, thank you to the uh, hundreds of thousands of Wisconsinites who made their voices heard in this unprecedented election before going on to note that although we were successful in this race, the circumstances under which this election was conducted were simply unacceptable and raised serious concerns for the future of our democracy. Nobody in this state or in this country should have been forced to choose between their safety and participating in an election. Too many were unable to have their voices heard because they didn't feel safe leaving their home or their absentee ballots were not counted. Wisconsinites showed their resiliency by overcoming many of the barriers created by the legislature and the courts to try and silence voters in this state, but nobody should ever be denied their right to vote. Boy, am I glad she will be on the Wisconsin uh, State Supreme Court. Newly outgoing Justice Daniel Kelly, who had been endorsed by Donald Trump, said, quote, It has been the highest honor of my career to serve the people of Wisconsin on their Supreme Court these past four years since he was appointed by uh, Scott Walker, the previous, the also ousted Republican governor uh, in Wisconsin. 
apparently the way it works in Wisconsin is the uh, governor uh, appoints a justice and then they eventually come up for election to be uh, approved by the people for a 10-year term. So this is this guy would have been sitting on the court for 10 years. So uh, Kelly said it has been an honor. Uh, obviously, I had hoped my service would continue for another decade, but tonight's results make clear that God has a different plan for my future. And all I can say in response, as I usually don't, is thank God. Karofsky surged to victory behind a record high number of absentee ballots, nearly as many as all the votes cast in a state Supreme Court just last year. The Wisconsin election crystallized what's expected to be a high-stakes state-by-state legal fight over how citizens can safely cast their ballots if the coronavirus outbreak persists into the November elections. Democrats are arguing for states to be ready to shift to much greater use of absentee and mailed ballots, while Republicans are raising the specter that such elections could lead to increased fraud. Well, let me fix that for you, AP. Republicans are raising the specter that such elections could lead to increased voting, which is what they're worried about. It's what even Donald Trump admitted last week on Fox News when talking about the Democrats' attempt to add $4 billion to the coronavirus emergency relief bill to help states run vote-by-mail elections in still upcoming primaries and this uh, this November in the general election amid a pandemic. Don't forget, Donald Trump said this. The things they had in there were crazy. Uh, They had things, uh, levels of voting that if you ever agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again. And of course, that's the problem. Levels of voting. People actually being allowed to vote. Look what happens. Look what happened in Wisconsin. Republicans lost. Democrats won. Crazy how that happens. Karofsky's win is likely to add fuel to Democrats' call for more mail-in elections and to uh, toughen and, and toughen GOP opposition to it. Democrats on Monday called for moving a May 12 special congressional election in Wisconsin to mail only. We will see how that goes. But as we always warn, on the day after elections, uh, or at least in this case, the day after election results are finally reported, Many of the problems on Election Day do take some time to come to light. In this case, sadly, state health officials are said to be tracking the health consequences of last Tuesday's election to see if voters and or poll workers see a bump in coronavirus infections. Uh, After working polls all day long in close quarters and standing for hours in line, risking their lives to exercise their right to vote, Even before the counting began, a group of Milwaukee-area voters filed a federal lawsuit seeking to force a partial revote to protect the thousands of voters who were disenfranchised by the election. I hope that case will continue. Many voters complained that they had requested absentee ballots that never arrived, forcing them to choose between sitting out the election or risking infection by voting in person. What happened to those ballots? Why did they never arrive? City officials in Milwaukee, as well as Wisconsin's two U.S. senators, called on the U.S. Postal Service to investigate the complaints. Well, I hope they do as well, because this is all going to come up again. 
whether it's the election uh, in mid-May for uh, for the U.S. House, that special election, whether it's going to come up in these 20 or so other states that still have primaries, or whether it's going to come up in all 50 states this November. We need to know what happened. Did the uh, post office screw this up somehow? We need to know. That is, of course, if the post office still exists as of June and November. The post office has said... Unless they get a uh, whole bunch of money right now from Congress, they're going to be out of business by June. They're going to be broke. They take no taxpayer money, by the way. They take only uh, money that you give them by buying stamps, which, by the way, go out and buy some stamps, whether you mean to send a letter or not. Go buy some stamps right now because Republicans do not seem inclined to save the post office with a bailout the way they've bailed out all of these other corporations. So anyway, in any event, I suspect we will continue to learn more about the disastrous uh, election in Wisconsin, even though the results so far have been very encouraging for progressives. I heard, you know, many last Tuesday as we were seeing footage of people waiting in lines that snaked around block after block after block. As I said, many in thunder and hailstorms. I heard many suggest that Democrats this year are willing to crawl over broken glass to vote. And that may be true. Though what many of the heroes in Wisconsin did last week may have been even more difficult and dangerous than crawling across broken glass. And I cannot thank them enough. You guys are my heroes. As far as the political fallout goes, well, I've got just the person to talk to about that. Wisconsin favorite son, John Nichols of The Nation, joins me next for that. I'm Brad Friedman, and you're listening to a pleasantly and surprisingly upbeat broadcast. Please stay right there. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. On Wisconsin, on Wisconsin, calling me that way. On Wisconsin, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Our friend and frequent listener and progressive Wisconsin blogger at Daily Coast who goes by the adorable name Putty Tat wrote last night, uh, former Governor Scott Walker, who lost his own bid for re-election in 2018, just keeps on losing. Three of his hand-picked judicial candidates lost in last week's election in Wisconsin. Milwaukee County Circuit Court judges Paul Dedinsky and Dan Gabler were both defeated in their elections, and State Supreme Court Justice Daniel Kelly lost his election to Judge Jill Karofsky. All three were Walker appointees to the courts, and they all lost. Risking their lives to vote in person and by absentee, she writes, breaking self-isolation to get a witness signature. Yes, because Wisconsin Republicans would not even waive that requirement during a global pandemic. Putty Tat's sister had to drive like 20 miles to come and, and sign her absentee ballot. 
Wisconsin, she writes, has once again shown that there are consequences to screwing around with people's votes, even with less than one percent of the polls open statewide due to the pandemic. People made a huge effort to show up. This, she writes, has made my heart very happy. Schadenfreuden is sweet, she writes. More in November, please. Well, that's one very happy Democrat in the Badger State today after the defeat of Justice Kelly, who had been endorsed by Donald Trump. The defeat by judge and soon-to-be Justice Karofsky has clearly brought some much-needed good news to Wisconsinites today as his defeat knocks the right-wing majority on the state's high court from a seemingly insurmountable 5-2 to two. Now to just four to three, at least until the next court election, which I believe is scheduled for 2023. But it was a decisive victory as well. According to The New York Times, Karofsky won 55.3 percent of the vote over Kelly's 44.7 percent. That is a 163,000 vote margin. Out of one and a half million votes that were cast statewide in the contest in a state where Donald Trump is said to have won by only 23,000 votes back in 2016. Our friend Slate legal reporter Mark Joseph Stern, who has been, to put it mildly, uh, furious about what happened in Wisconsin last week, as was I. He tweeted after the results were announced on Monday night. Quote, the folks who stood in line for hours in the midst of a pandemic to cast a ballot, they are the heroes of this moment. They refused to let voter suppression silence their voices. They risked their health and their lives to participate in our democracy. They are the best of America. Indeed, they are. But let's get a sense of how the rest of the state feels today and what all of this portends for its political future. And given the importance of Wisconsin and the 2020 presidential election, what it may mean to all of us uh, in the rest of the country. For that, we turn as we do after many Wisconsin election days past and hopefully future to Wisconsin's favorite son, journalist John Nichols. He is Washington correspondent for The Nation, contributing writer for The Progressive, and in these times, an associate editor of Madison, Wisconsin's Capital Times, and the author of many books on progressive politics, including his latest, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. Oh, John Nichols, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. It is great to be with you, my friend. I guess it is on a good news day for a change. Uh, so the big news out of Wisconsin, of course, is the state Supreme Court race. We've been uh, talking about that, and I want to get to that with you in a minute. But as I know, you're a big Bernie Sanders fan, John. Very quickly, let's deal with that for a, a brief moment for now. Uh, Sanders was soundly defeated by about 30 points last Tuesday, according to the reported results. Was, was there any real belief that he might might somehow uh, pull one out among progressive Wisconsin voters last week? Not really. Uh, and and the, the simplest answer to that is that Sanders had effectively pulled out of Wisconsin. Um, he had urged that in-person voting not take place on Election Day, and um, his own campaign had not been particularly ambitious. Uh, and so there wasn't a real sense that it was going to be a, a big Sanders showing Effectively, even before he had suspended his campaign, mm -hmm. there was the you know, sort of a soft suspension in Wisconsin. Um, with that said, um, I think you saw from Wisconsin uh, in Tuesday's voting 
an example of what you're likely to see going forward. Mm-hmm. Sanders got about a third of the vote. He actually carried a northern Wisconsin county. Uh, he carried, you know, some, you know, kind of your, a lot of your progressive areas around the state. And he'll get at least a dozen delegates out of Wisconsin, perhaps more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I will just tell you, I think that's where you're headed. And, and the way to understand Sanders at this point, and I've interviewed him in the last week or so and, mm-hmm. and looked at a lot of this, the way to understand him at this point is that he is no longer a candidate. He has, in fact, endorsed Joe Biden. However, um, he has not uh, ended the collection of delegates mm-hmm. uh, to press issues at the convention, and those are as regards the platform, which is very, very important, um, and also as regards rules for the party and potentially even influencing a vice presidential choice. So, so you feel he has not yeah. given up his leverage, because he did endorse on uh, on Monday, he endorsed John, uh, Joe Biden, uh, and and I guess he still will be on the ballot in the rest of the primary states, and there, by the way, there are still more than 20 of them. That's right. Um, so he'll still be collecting delegates. Does he? Uh, has he given away some of that leverage in uh, officially endorsing the the former vice president? I don't think so. In fact, I would go so far as to say that he may have increased his leverage. Uh, the fact of the matter is that if people do keep voting for Bernie Sanders and pushing him above that fifteen percent level, where you get delegates uh, in the states going forward, and by the way, it looks like in every congressional district in Wisconsin. Uh, Sanders was above the 15% level and will get delegates. Hmm. Um, if this continues in the states going forward, um, he's certainly got the potential to get another 250, 300 delegates, maybe even a little more than that. Um, that'll put him at a level of, you know, again, we'll, we'll see where it all ends up, but uh, more than a quarter, perhaps as much as, a, as uh, a third of the delegates to the Democratic National Convention that's uh, standing on the floor. That's standing uh, in the committees. Uh, it's a way, not, you know, I, I don't see it as necessarily aggressively challenging Biden so much as it is aggressively challenging the party to do what I personally believe is logical, and that is to move to the left on a host of issues. Um, that mobilizes more of the base. And I think it also, frankly, remember the debate this fall will be about how we avoid Republican austerity. Mm-hmm. The Republicans will come out of coronavirus and argue for massive cuts mm. and balancing the budget. Democrats have to have a profoundly coherent argument mm. for going forward with a Keynesian social democratic economics. Um, and they're not going to get that out of the, the centrist Democrats. The Frankly, the practical proposal for uh, going forward will come from the left. And uh, my sense is that the Sanders people at the convention will potentially, and going into the convention, play a really important role um, in literally potentially electing mm-hmm. Joe Biden. And, and of course, all of this remains to be seen. All of this is like a day-by-day thing at this point, including, you know, you mentioned... Uh, you know, standing on the floor at the convention. Uh, no, that won't happen. There, there may be no actual floor at that convention to stand on, given the pandemic. So uh, there's a lot of unknowns. But let's focus uh, now on Wisconsin, because uh, John Nichols, uh, how big a deal is this win of the progressive-backed Judge uh, Jill Karofsky over the Donald Trump-endorsed Scott Walker-appointed Justice Dan Kelly on the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin? I will tell you that it is the biggest deal of anything you and I have talked about. Really? Um, and we've talked, uh, 
you and I, brother, go back a long way. Yeah. Um, and we've talked a lot about a lot of big stuff. So um, I'm going to give you 30,000 feet, and then we'll bring it down okay. uh, fast. 30,000 feet is this. Um, America has uh, pivot point elections, elections that come in a period of tremendous turbulence, uncertainty, change. Those elections uh, define not just the moment and the few years going forward, but potentially the direction of the country over a long period of time. Uh, the great uh, pivot point elections of the last 100 years were 1932, when Franklin Roosevelt was elected and that ushered in the New Deal, and 1980 when Ronald Reagan was elected and that basically ushered in an undoing of uh, uh -huh. the New Deal and many of the things related to it. These are the elections we always look at, and mm -hmm. they're the ones that tell us so much. I think the coronavirus pandemic and the economic collapse that is occurring uh, in association with it create circumstances that are ripe for such an election. Uh, Wisconsin just held the first full-on coronavirus election. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the first time where all the absentee voting and all of the processes, or frankly, all the attempts at voter suppression, all occurred in the context of a lockdown of the national coverage on this, the state-based coverage, and there are a lot of cases, especially in Milwaukee. Um, and here's what happened. The Republicans ginned up their entire voter suppression operation. They put it on 11. They, they went for everything they could. Mm. Uh, and you know, you have well reported, better than anyone, all of the historic efforts at voter suppression in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. uh, they then took on something new, as the chairman of the Democratic Party said. They weaponized the, the coronavirus. They literally turned it into a tool yeah. to try and make it hard to vote. Um, and I, I won't go through every single detail of what happened, but the fact is they basically forced people to choose mm -hmm. uh, between uh, their health, mm -hmm. uh, threat to their health, and casting their vote. Yeah. The amazing thing that happened was through a combination of massive last-minute application for and receipt of absentee ballots, and there's a lot of problems with this, but basically a lot of people got absentee ballots and voted them. Postal workers did heroic work in, in trying to get those ballots delivered. There were still people who were disenfranchised, but a lot of people got those ballots in, and also a tremendous number of incredibly courageous people took the risk to go and vote, and it produced not just the Supreme Court victory for Jill Karofsky, which you've mentioned, but also massive wins for school funding mm -hmm. referendums across the state in Milwaukee, yeah. a narrow win in Racine and other places, and a wave of young progressive elected officials who won all over the state it was a, I don't think there's any way to say it, except that it was a true rebuke to the people who tried to suppress the vote. It, well, it was, and clearly, but on a political level, will uh, a Supreme Court now, uh, the uh, right-wingers will still control it uh, at, uh, with a, a four to three majority there. We, we have to wait, I guess, until 2023 at this point to see the uh, if they can actually flip it to a four to three progressive uh, majority? Is it, it, do I have those? That's more or less right? right, although we do have uh, some older justices, and sometimes people do step down. Okay. Um, and so that's the reality. If someone steps down in the next year or so, you would have that opening uh, for Tony Evers to appoint a judge, Tony Evers being the Democratic governor. Mm -hmm. um, our Supreme Court has been a chaotic, messy situation for quite a while, yes. as, as you also have reported. <laughs> yes. Um, and so, you know what? I don't make bets on the thing, but I can tell you, uh, it's better to be 4-3 than 5-2 or 6-1 right? Uh, or something like that. And so this narrows it. Two other things that are really important as regards to the Supreme Court. One, on some key issues, 
there's a swing conservative. There's a conservative who on some issues has voted with mm-hmm. um, the liberals. And so now you have the potential, not the certainty, but the potential of a swing there. That was you know, basically... That's what I was wondering. Is there uh, a swing vote that could end up flipping, at least in some cases? Because, you know, face it, in in, uh, Wisconsin for the past decade, whenever there have been any, uh, you know, big cases that make their way to the Supreme Court, state Supreme Court, we know what the outcome is going to be. It seems like the right-wingers vote that one way, the progressives vote the other way, and that is that. But you're saying that there is the possibility that uh, some of these closer questions could actually flip t- in the progressives' direction over the next couple of years? Absolutely. There's simply no question of that. We have, there is one conservative on the court uh, uh-huh. who has, on occasion, uh, sided with uh, the more liberal judges. And, you know, remember, not every case comes down to a, a clear left-right split. And um, there are certainly, I would think it's fair to say that the guy who got beat, Dan Kelly, was the most militant, uh, Scott Walker, mm. lockstep. Uh, there's another guy, Brian Hagedorn, who is very, very, uh, you know, lockstep. Mm-hmm. But there's a couple of women there who potentially, you know, you might have a little bit of space. And... I don't want to be naive about this. I don't want to be overly romantic. It's still a problematic court by any measure. But um, two things have shifted. One, to narrower split with some chance of uh, some variation there. Two, mm-hmm. this woman who got elected, Jill Karofsky, yeah. um, I cannot begin to emphasize what a skilled candidate she was. She ran an amazing campaign. Um, she's an ally of Rebecca Dallet, the young progressive judge on the Supreme Court. The two of them together, um, really, as well as there's a senior jurist there, uh, Ann Walsh Bradley, who's just a brilliant jurist, um, they're a strong team. Uh, they've got potential on this court to, you know, just to leverage their position. And so uh, the election mattered in that regard. But more important, Brad, and you know this, elections are about psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, people did not. I, I didn't know anybody who was betting that uh, Jill Karofsky was going to win. I mean, the, when she won, uh, people, some people's jaws dropped. <laughs> and I can tell you this, um, when she won by 160,000-plus votes, uh-huh. a 55-45 victory that created a map that looked like Barack Obama's 2008 map, mm-hmm. um, or at least the 2012 map. I'd say probably a little closer to that, but still a really good map for progressives. Um, and all the other victories in the school funding referendums and stuff, uh, you know, people, I have not seen Wisconsinites as, up, you know, Wisconsin progressives as upbeat um, in a long time. And, and I even include the 2018 election that got rid of Walker. Yeah, you got this rid of Walker, one, you had Tony Evers. Yeah. This is even uh, mm-hmm. a bigger earthquake than that? I think it shocked people more. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and... Yeah, at this point, I'll tell you why, Brad, because it's the issues you cover so often. It, there was a massive effort to suppress the vote. Well, I mean, uh, yeah. well, yeah, I, uh, there, there was. And, uh, of course, you know, going into it before the virus came, it looked like uh, Democrats, progressives in Wisconsin had a pretty... A decent chance in this election, given that there was a contested uh, Democratic primary going on. And uh, I think it was only once the virus struck that the Republicans suddenly got excited about this election, as clearly they, you know, they saw that uh, 
people having to risk their lives to vote might redound uh, to their benefit somehow. But Governor Evers... Hey, Brad, the, yeah. can I just interrupt you on one quick thing? Here? Sure. i tell you how their, their theory on this election was they tried to move it. They tried to move it to a different date than the mm-hmm. presidential primary. Right, right, early. So that was it. They thought the presidential primary was going to be a problem for them. But then when the presidential race dialed down, mm-hmm. that was step one. You know, and then when the coronavirus hit, there was clearly, I mean, even conservative commentators have acknowledged, there was clearly a strategy to make it so hard to vote and so dangerous and so messy yeah. that they thought they might pull it off. And that and was... They had a lot of analysts thought they might. Yeah, and, and that was, of course, that was earlier that the Republicans had tried to move, had tried to separate the state Supreme Court race from the presidential primary some months ago, and they were unsuccessful in doing that. So that's when all of these things, when they were stuck with having to do it on the same day. But uh, Governor Evers, a Democrat, uh, he tried to work with Republicans on this really right up until just a few days before the election. And I was quite critical of him uh, for that. He said he didn't have the authority as governor to postpone the election or or to mandate an all-vote-by-mail election. Uh, but did he wait too long to at least try to use the authority that he did have that was eventually you know, shut down by both the state Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court? But could he have done more earlier? Should he be held accountable for that, John? If you asked me yesterday mm-hmm. or two days ago, I would have said he should have done more earlier. Right. Um, looking at how it turned out, um, you know, it's an interesting dynamic. Uh, I think people were horrified by what the Republicans did, and I think it did create a backlash uh, and, and put some energy. But, of course, you don't want to play that game because you're dealing with public health. So, so at the end of the day, I would say Governor Evers should have done a different strategy. Governor Evers' strategy, which was one to try desperately to, to appeal to the better nature of, of the Republican legislative leaders, and they apparently have no better nature, right. um, you know, was that the problem with it was, here's what I would say. I think he should have assumed from the start that the Republicans were going to play politics with this, that uh, this was going to be a mess. And he should have started education on it uh, much earlier. He should never have said, as he did at some early points, he wasn't sure he had the power to delay the election. Um, that was that was giving stuff away right at the start. Right. He should have said from the start he had the power to, to delay it for public health reasons, but he wanted to work with the Republicans. He should have been speaking to the people of the state in very detailed ways um, two weeks out, and then as things got closer, he should have created more and more pressure uh, on the Republicans to move so that if they didn't move and he finally did it, it was really deeply understood mm-hmm. Um as such. So I, I do think the governor uh, should have done it differently. And, and I do think that the lesson for Democrats around the country is uh, do not underestimate uh, where the win at any cost Republicans might go. Um, in a a fight like this. And that's where we are now as we look forward. As I said, there's about uh, 20 plus states that are still to hold primaries of some sort over the next couple of months. Uh, And then, of course, there's the November election. So, John Nichols, uh, exit question here. What should we learn from uh, from this election going forward, both politically and on a, a simple basis of how we need to run elections during a pandemic, which could still be going on this November? And uh, what do you fear Republicans uh, themselves may take from what happened in Wisconsin? Sure. 
Um, you know, look, I, I do not underestimate uh, where the Republicans may look. I mean, their their attitude may be that they they didn't do enough to try and undermine this thing. Clearly, I think that's that's some of the signals we've gotten uh, in the aftermath of the voting here in Wisconsin right now. Mm-hmm. So um, I think you have to assume you're up against folks uh, who have proven uh, in Wisconsin, and, and frankly, because Wisconsin tends to export its pathologies, um, uh, that, that they might go to any length. So here's what I would suggest. First and foremost, um, the heroes in the Wisconsin fight are postal workers, and election clerks. They're mm-hmm. the people who try to make this thing work uh, through all the machinations. You cannot assume the courts are going to be on your side. You cannot assume they're going to do you any favors. So um, as the Democrats in Congress go into the next fight over the upcoming stimulus bill, and there will be another stimulus bill, uh, they first and foremost have to protect public health. They second uh, have to you know, focus on the importance of uh, protecting our, you know, people in a time of economic crisis. Mm-hmm. But parallel to this, there must be a, uh, a defense of democracy. And that defense of democracy must be an absolute demand for full funding and full functionality of the Postal Service. Yes. And then at the same time, there must be funding for the states to make a transition to a you know, kind of varied set of approaches that allow them to be flexible in a case that the per- coronavirus either lingers or double dips and that we have a, a problem again in the fall. So they have to make that an absolute iron clan bargaining point. We know the president and his allies still want to give away more money to their billionaire friends mm-hmm. and to Wall Street in that um, they're going to have to bargain with the Democrats in Congress. Democrats have to recognize that if they want to save American democracy, one of their no-compromise bargaining points must be full funding of the Postal Service yep. and protection of voting rights. Yeah, and, um, and that's not the end of the story, but that's a, that's the heart of it right now, and they can actually win that fight. Well, I hope they can. Uh, I think they should be able to. I sh- certainly think the American people would be on their side when they said, hey, we need to save the post office, which may collapse in uh, bankruptcy as of June. But I have not heard the Democrats putting that up, you know, up, up, up at top on on front of any future bills. Nothing should move forward unless they fully fund uh, elections for this year and fully fund the post office. Uh, I'm worried they're giving away that leverage, John. Um, please, uh, you talk to them more than I do. Please tell them <laughs> to, to put that uh, front and center and make no deals. Don't wait for phase, what, five, six, seven? This has got to happen in the next bill, it seems to me. I Look, I you're, you're from your mouth to God's ear, whatever phrase people <laughs> use. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not as good at that as some people. But I will <laughs> tell you this. Um, saving the Postal Service is about more than just democracy. Saving the Postal Service is you know, really about, you know, at least in the period we're in, maintaining a, a functional society. Um, so it ought, it ought not to be up for debate. But um, I can also guarantee to you that if we do not save the Postal Service, and, and not just save it but fully fund it, really make it functional at every level and with a lot of protection for postal workers, um, it, then getting any kind of, uh, you know, solution as regards to elections in November becomes much harder. So... That's the bottom line. I have talked to members of Congress. I'll continue to talk to them. I read it in the Nation magazine this mm-hmm. coming week about this exact issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm going to keep banging away on it. And I, I will tell you, I do talk to members of Congress who are excited about this and engaged with this. 
and one of them who I spoke with at great length just the other day will be spending a lot more time on congressional duties going forward, and that's Bernie Sanders, who really does get the postal issues, uh, as do some of his allies like Mark Pocan, mm-hmm. uh, congressman from Wisconsin. Good. So I think, I think this is a fight that has to be fought, and frankly, your listeners and your readers and everybody just has to be at the ready um, because it may only be a day or two days when, you know, this will come into focus. Uh, at that moment, we have to kind of unleash everything we've got to say um, that this this is a place where you don't bend. And at this um, point, uh, killing the post office, A, I wouldn't put it beyond uh, Republicans at any time, but they may look at this and say, hey, this is our only hope left for November to cause that kind of chaos. And... Yeah, so we are on the ready, John. Just uh, let us know when uh, it's time to sound the alarm. Journalist John Nichols, Washington correspondent for The Nation. You can find his work, of course, at thenation.com. You can buy his book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. Let's hope that is soon to be a historical archive. You can also find him on the Twitters at Nichols Uprising. Thanks for joining us on short notice, John. Always great talking with you, my friend. Brother, there are a few pleasures in my life greater than talking with you. <laughs> You're kind. We'll take it. <laughs> take care. Okay. Uh, we got, you know, I actually had, uh, I, I've gotten even more good news. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, but I can't get to it. So uh. we're going to have to spread it out for the rest. That's all right. Give us uh, some more good news for the rest of the week. <laughs> We could probably use it. Yeah, spread it out. And uh, now you have to tune in to find out what it is because we're going to take a quick break and come back with Desi's News, which is never good, (laughs) otherwise known as the Green News Report. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Looking down the list here of your uh, stories in the Green News Report, I don't, I don't think I was lying. Well, I, I think not, not a lot of bright news today. But there in is the Green some. News Report. There's always some. A little bright spot. We'll see in our latest Green News Report. I'm getting the kids, telling them to get under the bed. I'm yelling for my wife. She's screaming. The roof coming off. And then the whole roof flew up. Deadly tornadoes hammer the South, complicating coronavirus emergency response. This would have been on a store shelf 24 hours from now, um, 
but it's not. Farmers forced to dump fresh milk destroy food crops as coronavirus upends U.S. food system. Plus... A historic deal, but already big analysts are coming out and saying, look, it's simply insufficient. Deal reached to cut global oil production. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Nobody is winning at $25 oil. Well, not nobody, CNBC. I think consumers may be pretty happy about it. But then again, consumers aren't really your interest over there at CNBC, are they? This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, on top of a coronavirus pandemic, now we've got to start worrying about storm season. Indeed we do, and it's already started. At least 32 people have been killed in the south after tornadoes and severe thunderstorms swept across 12 states from Texas to West Virginia early Monday morning. The governors of Alabama, Louisiana, and Mississippi have declared states of emergency over the damage, and that's on top of already declared states of emergency for the coronavirus pandemic. That has strained emergency response capabilities and complicated efforts to prevent the spread of the virus among storm victims forced into community shelters. This is something you've been warning about for quite some time, the idea of several different disasters all happening at once in certain places. Yep, and now we're getting to see how well we respond to multiple disasters simultaneously or not. Or not. The global oil price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia has ended, for now, with an historic agreement to cut their production starting in May. Oil prices have crashed over the last few months due to the price war, a pre-existing supply glut, and a lack of demand for oil caused by coronavirus shutdowns around the world. The deal means that the OPEC oil cartel and several major oil-producing countries will cut production by nearly 10 million barrels of crude oil per day. That's about one-tenth of world supply, but oil demand itself has dropped 35 percent. That's why industry analysts warn that this largest oil output cut in history is probably not going to be enough to prop up prices because of that global slump in demand. They warn it likely won't be enough to prevent dozens of U.S. oil producers from going bankrupt. And it won't prevent the gas prices from continuing to fall. Right. The coronavirus pandemic has also disrupted the nation's food supply chain. While families are lining up at food banks around the country, the New York Times reports that farmers are being forced to waste staggering quantities of fresh food, dumping perishables like milk, eggs and vegetables in the trash and destroying crops due to a crash in demand from large institutional customers like restaurants, hotels and schools that are closed due to shutdowns. Food banks can safely receive, store and refrigerate only some of that surplus. Paul Allen of Florida's Hatton Farms told CNN that farmers are struggling to adapt to the abrupt shift in demand. It's, it's just too massive to handle. You have to understand this is a perishable crop. You know, you're to harvest it on one given day and you got about a two-day window to get it harvested. If you don't, then it's, it's bad. It's not frozen, not canned. So it's planted every day and it's harvested every day and it's meant to be consumed every day. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that some Wisconsin dairy farmer groups say the USDA has not yet responded to their request for the federal government to buy and distribute their surplus food. 
Farmers are also reporting critical shortages of farm workers due to the virus. COVID-19 is also affecting the meat processing industry. The world's biggest pork producer, Smithfield Foods, announced on Sunday it is closing some U.S. plants indefinitely due to the spread of coronavirus among employees. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, firefighters are struggling to control large wildfires that are burning through radioactive forests in the abandoned territory around the destroyed Chernobyl nuclear plant. Uh Greenpeace Russia reports that satellite photos indicate the fires have come within two miles of where some dangerous waste from the Chernobyl nuclear disaster is stored. While the smoke does carry some radiation, officials say levels are very low. Ukrainian officials? Yes. Mm, Be careful about trusting them. Finally, some good news. The closure of polluting coal plants has resulted in clear gains for public health. A new study has found that in Lexington, Kentucky, toxic air pollutants dropped 55 percent after one coal plant closed. Air quality improved so quickly that hospitals in Lexington, Kentucky, saw 400 fewer admissions for asthma in the first year after the closures. It's another example of how quickly public health will improve with transitioning away from fossil fuels. They closed the coal plant and they had 400 fewer admissions for asthma in one year? Yes. Dramatic. Yeah, I'll say. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. Blue skies smiling at me Nothing but blue skies So, you're right. There is some good news there, at least for Kentucky. At least for breathers. Yeah, breathers in Kentucky. All the rest of the coal plants, we still got to fight against those. And uh, just to ruin your good news, uh, you had mentioned uh, the fire near Chernobyl was about two miles away from the the site of the disaster. Uh, There is some question about where it actually is. Ukrainian officials are not being forthcoming. Uh, One report, I think, from a satellite map shows it about half a mile at this point from Chernobyl. No matter how far away it is, it's still too close. And no matter how good news your GNR uh, can be, here I am ruining it. (laughs) Sorry about that. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, to my guest today, John Nichols of The Nation, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always appreciated. It is always our honor. Uh, if you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And yes, share it with your friends, family, and share it worldwide. You can also reach me via email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. Hope to see you there. And as ever, my thanks to those of you who keep us going on the Bradcast every day by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. That's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Not